Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. Welcome everyone. It's wonderful to be here with Carl Rossner and uh, your daughter, Elizabeth Rossner, speaking together with me, Julie Lindahl, between New York and Stockholm about Carl's story, Elizabeth's story as well, their family story. Elizabeth, maybe you'd like to read the first paragraph from Survivor Cafe, your book uh, in which you deal with the legacy of your family as a, the briefest of introductions to our conversation. Thank you, Julie. And this is from page one of the introduction to Survivor Cafe. The subtitle of the book is The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory. Both of my parents survived the Holocaust. The bare bones version of their story goes like this. Spared for a while from numerous deportations, and after managing to live through the Allied bombing of Hamburg in 1943, my father, from age 15 to 16, was imprisoned in Buchenwald concentration camp. My mother was a 13-year-old hiding on a farm in the Polish countryside after escaping from the liquidation of the Vilna ghetto. They met after the war was over as refugees in Sweden they married in Israel and immigrated together to the United States. By the time I was born on the last day of the 1950s, my parents were living in their first purchased home in Schenectady, New York, on a street called Van Rensselaer Drive. Thanks so much. Listen, in your book, you have a phrase which is shared pass retained separately that different family members of your family members, you have this shared past, but you, you retain it, you retain these separately. And I was wondering, Carl, about, you know, when you and your wife met here in Sweden and had, had gone through these very harrowing experiences, did you feel that you had the same way of dealing with that, if you like, common past, or did you have different attitudes about how to handle that and deal with that? Well, I think we had similar attitude, but not identical. No, we had different experiences, and we didn't. We had some disagreements in number of areas, but basically, I think we were married for almost fifty years. So there, there was most. We had good agreements in general. I, I think one of the things I can add in here is, you know, because we emphasized earlier in the interview my father's optimism and his tendency to believe in 
in things getting better. I, you know, I think my mother struggled with that kind of point of view more than my father. She she had a tendency to to worry about the future, I think, more than you and and her her experiences had really traumatized her in a different way, but different experiences, different kind of trauma, but not that anyone used that word trauma in those days. But I was always shocked to understand that you and mom didn't really share your experiences verbally with each other, that you didn't really talk about the past. You both sort of looked toward the future, maybe differently, but but Mm -hmm. that agreement was we're in America, we're starting a new life, we're going to have children, we're going to you know, get ahead and be successful and get comfortable and have friends. And What year did you come to America? In 1952. Mm. And and where did you first settle? Was it immediately in Schenectady? No, first we settled in New Jersey. I went to uh, college the Newark College of Engineering. That's another little ironic piece of the Swedish story that even though you graduated from the institute, the Stockholm Institute of Technology. Yeah. Anyway, my father had this degree, this engineering degree, and he comes to Newark and tries to get a job, and they say, "We don't count that degree. You, that's a foreign degree, right?" All right. <laughs> so he had to go to Newark College of Engineering to do the degree over again here in America. I guess they gave you some credits. They right? gave me. They gave me credit for about two years, half of time. So I, I only got. Uh, needed to get two additional years and then I was hired that was very lucky again that I after two years I got a bachelor degrees and I was hired by GE to the research lab that was really also very good the the guy that interviewed me uh, had heard that I had I was a, a research lab assistant in Sweden and he said, okay, you would be good for the GE Research Lab. So I really liked that. And that was another lucky stroke. For me. And while they were in Newark living with my mother's mother, um, my mother was working as a key punch operator and my father was going to school and they were they were kind of, you know, putting an American life together, you know, starting to speak English and um, and then... Schenectady chose them and they chose Schenectady. Right. I mean, I wanted to go back to this point you raised about language. Did your did your wife speak German? She learned it from me. <laughs> oh. But she she spoke some German quite she was a language genius. She spoke about six or eight languages. She was amazing. She never actually studied German. She was she learned Yiddish during her time in the ghetto. She had a Yiddish teacher, but she spoke Polish and Russian as a, as a child, then Yiddish, then Swedish, then German sort of magically acquired, then Hebrew, then English coming to America and uh and they had this agreement Spanish, yeah. somehow that German was the language of the murderers and they didn't speak it with each other, and they didn't want us to speak it. 
Right. I wanted to come to that. Um, so, Carl, when did you did you make a conscious decision not to speak German anymore at some point, or it, it just did it just fade from your life? When I go to Hamburg or to Germany, my German is still fluent, and uh, I didn't make it a conscious decision, but. I didn't want my children. Elizabeth has a story about that. I, uh, I, I just uh, didn't want my children to to want to live in Germany. No. Okay. It wasn't some sort of decision that you yourself personally reached that you'd never speak it again. No, I didn't. I in didn't. fact, no. Wolfie and my father still speak in German. That's yeah. their that's their language together always. Yeah. My okay. my brother and I when we talk once a week or once every other week, we always speak in German. Right. This is a good time to cross over into these times, various times when you return to Germany, uh, I believe once in the 70s, then in 1983, 1995, and 2015, different times when you went back. What was it like the first time and what motivated you to want to go back the first time? The first time I was trying to go to Hamburg, and I, I really tried to stay over the weekend, but I felt so badly that I arrived in Hamburg on Friday, and I felt so badly I had to leave right away. I could not stay there. My memories were so bad, I had to leave right away. But later on, I could stay longer, and gradually my feelings disappeared and especially I was quite pleased the way the younger generation accepted their responsibility and tried to uh, make things better in terms of accepting responsibility for what had happened. Well, the the times you went back after that first time in the 70s, because in the 70s, you went because of business, is that correct? Yeah, right, right. Mm, but the subsequent times you returned were with family for, for the express purpose of making visits to different places and specifically to Buchenwald. Yes, although there was another visit that he made just with, well, also with family, but with my mother when Hamburg invited you as a guest of the city, right? That was a time that you and mom went, just the two of you. And so, but you're absolutely right that it was it was a very specific um, kind of reconciliation process. Yeah, I think I think the Germans tried to accept responsibility and show that they felt what had happened uh, was not what they uh, really wanted to continue, and that they uh, really wanted to re have a recovery, and we appreciated that. When you say the young people are taking responsibility, just to clarify, you don't mean that they're responsible in the sense of perpetration. No, not in, in the sense of responsibility for, for that, but just that they felt that it, was, it had, had really 
done wrong and that, that they felt that their family members had really uh, done something that they would never have done. Mm -hmm. So to differentiate themselves from from yeah. their maybe Nazi or oh, right, exactly. ancestors, even if it was within their own family, they were trying to differentiate from that. That's right. Mm -hmm. So if it would have been possible for you to return this year, because I understand that 2020 was uh, the next year in which a visit might have been might have been possible, would you have gone? Yes, I, I had planned to go. We were all prepared to go. I was going to go, my father, and this time my, my brother and one of his daughters was going to go. So there were going to be four of us and, and we were fully prepared to go. But of course, it all it all was canceled. Right. Was it was it mainly the meetings with young people and school children that that got your feelings to shift? Uh, and what were these feelings that shifted? What was it that changed? I wanted to show them personally what I had experienced, okay? So that I met somebody who who was still survived the atrocities that we were exposed to. But the thing that I was impressed by are the people uh, who were taking care of us as part of the organization that made the visits possible. You're talking about like the Buchenwald Memorial Committees and yeah, things the committees, like that. Right. They really appreciated and understood what we had gone through and were trying to understand that that was a terrible kind of a behavior by their parents and grandparents. So the question Julie was asking about, what was the feeling in you that you had to get over? The feeling I had to get over was to meet the older people who were still uh, in favor and, and still liked the Nazis, okay? and felt the Nazis did the right thing. And there's still people today who, who, who like Nazis. Yes, but those people would not have been around uh, the organization of those services um, and, and things like that. So um, in a way, maybe the contact with the people who want to see change, want to see a coming to grips with the with the past and a taking of responsibility was was the the essential part of it. Right. I was very, very moved uh, when I watched the short video of you placing a white rose on the word Kinder children at Buchenwald. Um, in memory of the 1.5 million children murdered in the Holocaust. What went through your mind when you did that? Well, the tragedy that occurred and what these children, if they had grown up, could have accomplished and also uh, contributed to the world, not just to the Jewish people, but really the the competences and the education and the contributions they could have made as part of their, their capabilities overall, 
that this is a terrible loss and uh, I just feel terrible over, for every one of them that got brutally killed. I cannot get over that. And I think about it almost every day. Yes. And um, I mean, I, I think it's it's a it's very very important this thought because very often the number of children who perished in this is kind of skipped over. Uh, that the larger number of of total people is usually mentioned, which is of course equally as horrific. But but I think it's important to mention the number of children, and I I think it was it's, it's very moving that you do that. And I wonder whether that kind of emerges out of the fact that really you lost your childhood in a way to that time. Or do you feel that you lost your childhood? Maybe I'm misinterpreting it. Maybe maybe I, I haven't understood this correctly. Um, but that you as somebody who in a way gave up your childhood to that time um, want to stand for those children and to remind people. Yeah, exactly. It's part of it. Why I think about that, because I lost my childhood too, in in many ways. Uh, but the key is both losing those children, but losing them in such a brutal way, right? I mean, there was such a high level of brutality in which they were killed. I just can't get over that can't yeah. understand it how how people could be so brutal in terms of killing babies and small children and even larger children it's it's just unbelievable do you believe in the idea of evil and and if you do what what does it mean to you what is it yeah i i believe that there are people who are born evil and I also believe pe people that that really want to be evil. I, I, I just can't think of it. It makes me feel very badly. Hmm. You stood in classrooms many times. And what are the most common questions that the children ask you? What are they most curious about? It's hard to tell. They're always different. Can I jump in here? Yeah, go ahead. One yeah. of the things I've noticed um, that often is asked of my father is um, how he was able, for example, to to fall in love and start a family. Like how how could he have such a hopeful outlook on life after after his experiences? And you always have a sweet answer to that question, don't you? When people say, "How did you do it?" Yeah, I guess so. It's uh... he said. Well, I'll say what what I've heard my father say. I mean, I'm his daughter, so this is maybe self serving to say it. But yeah. he says, "Well, I fell in love with a very beautiful, intelligent woman, and I knew we would have smart, attractive children." <laughs> but I think you know the kids. The kids seem to understand the gap and the the chasm between the story he's telling and what he lived through and, and the life he was able to create. And I think, I think that's something that kind of fills them with, with wonder and also maybe inspiration 
right? No matter how hard your life might feel, that that there's a possibility. And and when you were talking about the the murder of 1.5 million and the the loss, the immeasurable loss, it's also about that lost potential. And so I think there's something he wants to convey to these young people about their potential. Yeah, and I also feel a responsibility to make up for that. I feel I have to compensate for the loss. What can I do that they would have contributed? It's sort of a burden that I carry with me as well. That's somehow the, the answer I also give. I mean, I, I think to me, the word that, that we we need to put interject into our conversation is resilience. I, I think what you're giving them is resilience. Uh, and um, also um, that the resilience part is that despite what you went through, you retain your optimism and have grasped life and had this wonderful family uh, and, um, and, and hope for the future, um, which sometimes can seem very daunting, I think, particularly today when young people turn on the television or the radio or look into their computer screens and see this very divided and sometimes very unpleasant types of, of inter exchanges going on on the internet. And I also don't want the bad people to win. I want the good people to win. <laughs> right. I wanted to ask you about the idea of never forgetting. We're coming into a, a time when most people alive don't remember the time that you lived through. And even if they, they know about it or they've studied the history, they don't remember in that sense because you can't remember something you didn't live through. They've learned about it. You know, there are new and shocking historical events that are taking over our attention all the time in this constant news cycle. So in all this, with, you know, fewer and fewer people alive who experience this time and this terrible um, events that you live through, what does never forgetting mean? What should we understand that as? Uh, we who, um, you know, need to go on with, without having lived through that. I know, that's very difficult. In fact, I was very surprised that as some prominent person said, the story of one person being killed is terrible in the story of a hundred thousand or a million people killed is a statistic, and that is very difficult to remember, right? A statistic. But to remember the 1.5 million children, what they could have contributed, and not to forget that fact and the, the details of any one of them could have contributed, and and what many many people in that statistic could have contributed to the world is amazing, and that's what we should never forget. I think you're you're always going back to the the remembering of the children, and I think that is very compelling. 
I'm not saying that the, the adults are, are less important, but somehow there's something about these children that never got to live out their full lives that really draws us to this story and makes us focus on it. I, I often ask myself what never forgetting means since I was born in 1967. So I, I don't have a personal experience of that time. At the same time, I want to try to fulfill this idea of never forgetting, but I'm wondering what the best way to do that is. You're right. It's very difficult, especially if people like myself are no longer around, right? Mm, right. Well, one way is by having recorded conversations like this, I guess. Yes. And having and having people like me take it on as as my yeah. life mission as well. And yeah. it's always going to be, as you say, another interpretation and another step removed from the the first-hand witnessing and the first-hand experience but it is it is a kind of as we were saying before a taking of responsibility that is that is part burden and part blessing mm. yeah and, and this also sorry what go Ezra ahead. does i think he he talks to groups of people and brings it alive to them all right Your grandson yeah yeah Mm. This is a this is a, a very good way to get into a, another question, Liz. Uh, the way you interjected there is a good way to get into a another question to Carl, which is, how do you see the way that your different family members, um, Elizabeth, um, Ezra, have taken on the subject of remembrance in your story? How do you react when you see Elizabeth's book, uh, or you see Ezra presenting your story? I'm very proud of them. They they really give me hope that the never forgetting is is coming to life through through the way they see it and through the way they see their responsibility. And I'm hoping that they will continue doing that and finding other people that will really recognize what they are doing and maybe accepting it and taking it on, learning from them and doing it also. So uh, I, I see that as an amazing activity that they have accepted and they may really find other people that will continue doing it and following them and the next and an additional uh, responsibility so uh, as i said i feel very blessed that they are doing it elizabeth's book certainly uh, doing it in a way that hopefully it will continue uh, doing it because the books are, are so helpful and not only talking about that, but also about the the quality of what she's doing and the the helpfulness in the way she's explaining not only that part, but making it broadly available to people that like to read her books. She's a very talented person. I wanted to ask the two of you whether there are 
things about uh, the approach to, to handling your family past that you don't agree on uh, or areas where you have differences? I don't know. Do well, we I think one thing that has evolved over time um, and I, I think maybe that was what my father was just getting at a moment ago, the idea that that it's possible to talk about the Holocaust alongside other genocides and atrocities and, and histories of collective trauma that that don't diminish the uniqueness of the Holocaust, but that help illuminate the shared human experience of, of suffering and, and resiliency, and that I think at first my father was concerned that if I if I talked about the Holocaust by itself, that that was the best way to honor it, but that that there was some kind of threat or danger of talking about it in any other way. And and I think over time my father has come to appreciate and understand that I that I absolutely honor the uniqueness of the Holocaust and always will, and that I can I can discuss echoes and, and interconnections with other human history in contemporary examples as well. And and that I think that has been something we had to talk about a lot and 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 understand each other. But I think my father understands now why I do that and I think he respects it. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I think we don't have really any questions about it anymore that uh, could cause complications in our views, the way we look at it. And what about the youngest generation in your family? What's, what is their response and what do you hear from them in your own family? I, I'm not sure. I don't think they're old enough to really appreciate and understand the, the sophistication of what it takes to really understand what what happened in the Holocaust, what happened in some of these atrocities that also happens in, in other countries. I mean, these are just terrible, terrible things. I think one one possible answer to that as well is, for example, Marushka, my brother's daughter who was going to accompany us in April for the 75th anniversary of liberation, mm -hmm. she has never yet been to Europe at all. And so some of, some of their growth and education is also to, to begin to understand where their grandparents came from, like the cultures that they left behind or the, the language and the landscape that they left behind. And, I know for me, going to Europe as a young person was also about, for example, when I first went to Sweden, and I've been to Sweden five times, I kept on wanting to go back. There was some part of me that kept on trying to imagine who I might have been had my parents stayed in Sweden, you know, or what if they stayed in Israel, or what if my father had never left Germany and my mother had never met him. And, you know, so there's a lot of sort of questions that you can ask about your own identity by exploring the history of your parents and grandparents. And so I think some of his grandchildren still have yet to do that. There's still discoveries they have yet to make about themselves and how their own lives are shaped by where their ancestors came from and what they went through. 
Right. Well, we've been talking for a long time, and I feel very privileged to have been able to listen to you both today. I wanted to thank you from my seat here in Drottningholm in Sweden, Carl and Elizabeth Rossner, for taking the time. And um, let us hope that, that we'll, we'll all be able to continue to pursue our, our family legacies and, and to, to discover and to, to remember. Julie, I, I want to thank you from my heart to yours for, for this beautiful form of service that you're performing and, and for all of your sensitivity and thoughtfulness. Okay, thank you, thank you very you. much. You've been listening to The Creative Conversations, a production of Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.